Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. I don't know if you know this, um, but we had a, a celebrity sighting last night. Um, I'm a little bit tired because, you know, there was this big old party that happened. Um, We threw a church Christmas party, and um, the one and only Chet Saltine showed up to the party. And if you don't know who Chet is, Chet is sort of a character that, you know, on occasion visits our church and surprises us with his candor and um, his incredible hair um, and the mustache. And I won't tell you who Chet is, um, but he's somebody in the church, and whenever Chet comes, that person seems to go, and then Chet comes, and then it, it's, it's a marvelous thing. Um, but there's something about celebrity sightings. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a celebrity in person. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was traveling with some people in the church, and we were walking through um, the Minneapolis airport and made our way just through the check-in, and all of a sudden... We like turned the corner and Cameron Diaz was like right there. Yeah. And so we're, we're like, oh my, like, I think that's Cameron Diaz. And so, of course, one of us got the courage and went up and was like, hey, I want to talk to you and I want a photo with you. And she was like, hey, sorry, you know, I don't do that. Like, I made a policy like 10 years ago. I don't take photos. You know, we're like, what? Um, but there was this whole commotion and crowd around this person. Um, I don't know if you've seen anybody in public just randomly who's a notable celebrity. Um, But I do remember also traveling at one point and um, just coming up upon a crowd. Like a bunch of people gathered around, and then there was paparazzi, there was cameras there. And you could tell they're like, they knew somebody was coming out of a building, and they were waiting for that person. And it's this whole, whole scene. And then all, all of a sudden, out of the building comes Rafael Nadal who at that time was like the leading tennis player in the world. Like he was a big deal. And like every, I mean, noise, flash of lights, capturing the moment. And um, we were probably like, you know, about this close to him. Um, But there's often the scene surrounding a celebrity. And sometimes I think um, in our approach to Christmas, the commotion, the lights, the crowding around of people gives us with the impression of, There's a scene, but we don't know who it's actually about. We're wondering who's going to appear and who that person is and why all the commotion. Certainly, there's much made of Christmas in our present culture, but I wonder how many people actually know who's going to appear or if there's just a lot of lights and a lot of noise happening. John, in his gospel, wants to take us to that scene, that celebrity sighting, if you will, and reveal to us the man of the moment, the person that we need to actually see and that all of this fuss is about. And he does it in this incredibly uncommon way with a lot of imagery and a a bit of poetry. Some have conjectured that this should be like a song of some kind, the first 15 verses of John. I don't think so. I think it's just this sort of like meaningful flowing prose where he's trying to, in in the span of a few verses, summarize the entirety of his whole gospel. In about 20 verses, highlight 20 chapters. And so it's packed full of meaning. It's dense. And what John wants us to see is that Advent and Christmas is a lot lot more about grit than it is glitter. 
There's nothing sort of sparkly about this. There is this waiting, this aching, this hoping, this longing component to Advent. Not so much like a press moment. There is within us this longing for the light to come again. That's what the season is all about. And if we're honest, the last couple of years, they've made our hearts ache a bit for light and for life. Two of the themes in these first verses of the gospel. We've said, perhaps on repeat, maybe we don't say anymore, but at first, when will things return to normal? We just want to go back to life as it once was. And yet the gospel of John is clear that the light has come not to return us to normal. The light has come not to make things normal, but to make them new. And so in a season like we're in, I'm excited to dive into these verses slowly, to meditate on them, so that we might capture the newness of what God might be trying to do within our church and within our world. That Christmas might be new in a fashion for us, such that we could go, yeah, there, there are new things God is doing. I don't need to go to normal again. I need to go with the new that Jesus is bringing. In many ways, there is um, a bit of darkness surrounding the last few years, a bit of lifelessness, if you will. And I think it so parallels the wanderings of God's people in the wilderness, wondering what's happening and where things are going. But even those people then had a light, a fire, a pillar, and a cloud leading them through. And my hope is here in the first few verses of John's gospel that we would again see a light that could lead us through. And that amidst the confusion of our present moment, we might not be confused that there is one leading us, leading us to a good land, a promised land. So what I want to do this morning is I want to reflect on a couple of the key phrases in verses one through five. And we'll do so to kind of begin this theme that will hit the next few weeks, that the light has come. Now, let's read it again. You read it yourself, but I'll read it back to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning is the phrase that we need to think about for a moment, because for the original hearers, that would have been like a familiar song lyric. They would have known exactly what is happening. But for us, it kind of feels like that holiday tune where I know this is familiar, but I'm not quite sure I can repeat the line or, you know, start singing in with the chorus. And, and, and let me bring it sort of back to your memory. In the beginning is this great cue back to the beginning. The first pages of the Bible actually start with the same words, a different language, but the same phrase. Verse 1 of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form or void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be life, light, and there was light. You see the parallel in themes? In the beginning, God speaking a word, light is appearing in darkness, John is recovering something for us. He's taking us back to that original moment of creation, saying that in Christmas, 
In the coming of Jesus, there is a kind of new creation that's happening. The incarnation brings new creation to the world. That's his point here in these opening words. And of course, it goes far deeper than that. If we talk about in the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God. So now you've got two things going on. You've got the word, and you've got God. And this might seem normal to you, but to them, as they first heard this, this would, this would be sort of interesting, right? He, John is appealing to two major audiences in his own time. There would have been the Jews, who, when they heard the word word, logos, in the Greek, would have thought, okay, that's a pointer to the words of God, to the Torah, to the promises of God, to the way that God worked in the world, how he spoke things and said that they would happen and then he fulfilled them and they came to be. They would immediately said, this is, this is what the whole Old Testament is about, that God's word was coming to pass. They would have been like, okay, yes, the word. They would have not gotten that the word was with God or that the word was God. But, okay, so there's one audience, the Jews, and then you've got the Greeks. As he's appealing to these people who did not know the history of Israel, did not know the, the Old Testament scriptures, he's also giving them a word that catches their attention. This same word, logos, right, would have cued their own philosophical jargon about the order, the design, the principle behind all things. This sort of approach to life that realized there was some sort of form or nature that, that, that made things exist and that which things should conform to in their existence, even though they don't. There's an ideal and then we have the real. And so all of a sudden, he's got both audiences of his day cued in, talking about something important. And then he changes the story on them. For the Jews... When he says the word was with God and the word was God, they would immediately go, whoa, whoa, there's one God. How is the word God? And then there's God. We're talking about two, but God is one. So how is there two? They would immediately been like, this is what's going on here. This is not what we have heard. And the same thing is true for, for the Greeks. They would have said, wait a second. If you're saying the word was with God, and in the beginning he was with God, there's a kind of proximity, a kind of relationship. It even goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God. There's a personal nature to the word that would have shattered all of their categories of a principle. Somehow we're not talking about a principle of philosophy, we're talking about a person who knows intimately the God who is the creator. Both groups in new territory, John is pressing them to see what the scriptures have been pointing to all along, that there is one God. But as the incarnation, as Jesus comes into the world, the fullness of that one God gets revealed in three persons. Now, this might sound crazy to you. How can you be one in three? And if that sounds crazy to you, you're not off base by any means. In fact, um, what, the, what the first believers in Christ wrestled with was how do we make sense of all the language in the New Testament with this monotheism, this one God theology that we've had for centuries upon centuries? 
And so as they work this out with the New Testament writers claiming Jesus to be divine, God, and then also saying the Spirit is the Lord, there was actually some, some needed discussion. And the first church council in 325 AD was actually convened just to do that. It wasn't to invent Jesus as a divine being. In fact, that had been taught since the early days of the church, even by Jesus himself. But it was to confirm because there was so much confusion about who Jesus was, particularly from a guy named Arius. You might not know him, you don't need to know him, but what he needed, but what he pressed and what he started to teach around the known world at that point was that there is a God and then that there is the word of God, Jesus. God as the creator, Jesus as the first and highest, best creation, and through this created being, everything else was made. Now, the problem with that is, one, Genesis and then John, which says very clearly that the word is not a creation of God, but is God. This might seem like theological gymnastics to you, but it was fundamental to the faith. So much so that as they wrestled through this issue and landed with decisive clarity, they wrote a creed that's still recited 1,700 years later today. It's the Nicene Creed. Let me read a bit of it to you because it's beautiful. This is what it says. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten, not made, which might seem confusing to you, but what they're saying there is Jesus is of the same essence, the same nature, the same substance as God. He is begotten of the Father before all worlds, before creation. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of the one substance with the Father, and by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. This is Christmas. They're rehearsing the Christmas story that, that the, the word of God is fully God, God of God, light of light, and has come into the world and put on flesh, which sounds crazy, but is absolutely needed. And here's why. It's needed because the world was not in need of making a few things better. The world was in need of making all things new. And so what John is saying is the situation in your lives and mine, the situation in their time and ours was so dire that not did we just need a little improvement of things, but we needed something completely new altogether. Not had sin, not had our own brokenness, not had the mess of our world gotten a little bit in the way such that we can't quite get back to normal. In fact, Things had gotten so far from normal that normal wouldn't do anymore. Things needed to be made new. This is what the incarnation is about. The incarnation, as John is saying in verses 1 through 5, is all about new creation. New creation. He was in the beginning with God. And then, here we go, back to creation. All things were made through him. 
And without him, not anything was made that was made. In the first few verses, we have Jesus as God. We have Jesus as creator. And now we're going to get that incredible tie to Jesus as the one who shares the very essence, nature of God himself. That's what he's getting at when he says here, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What he's saying here is that in Jesus and in the Godhead is a, is a kind of life that goes far beyond matter. It hits to the very meaning of things. In Jesus, what we see is one who has life itself, the kind of life that you and I hunger and long for the kind of life that perhaps the last season of life for you, whether it's personal challenges or whether it's societal difficulties, has felt lacking. Jesus is the one who not just gives breath, matter to our bones, physicality, but meaning to our souls, the breath of life into our very being. In the later portions of John's gospel, Jesus speaks to the crowds and he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's picking up on all of those great Old Testament passages where God himself is spoken of as the fountain of life and the one by which we see light. The design that we have as human beings made in the very image of God is that we would draw life from our creator and not from other things. But isn't that the tension that we all face? That we tend to find our life, we tend to come alive with things other than the living God. We find our hope, we find our satisfaction, we find our life in the things present in this life rather than the one who has given life. C.S. Lewis writes, I think very powerfully about this. He, of course, was the great 20th century writer who wrote much fiction, but also an incredible account um, of the faith called mere Christianity. And here's what he writes. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, they would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And if I find in myself a desire in this world that this world cannot satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. His logic is, if I go on through life aching, longing, hoping for things and getting glimpses of them in this world that never seem to satisfy fully in the way that I hope. It means that the things present in this world and perhaps the world as a whole together is not what I was made for. I was made for a different world, another world, a new world that's coming, a world that has begun in the incarnation. He goes on to say, probably, Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse this desire for the real thing, to suggest the real thing. 
And if that's so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else, which they're only a copy, an echo, an image of. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Lewis is saying that we were made for another land. Or in the words of John, we were made for another world. And our encounter with the brokenness within us and around us is supposed to be a flashing light pointing to the one who is truly light, the one in whom is true life. We were meant to find that in Jesus. And then, of course, John doesn't leave us without a word of hope here. He says, the light shines, verse 5, in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, the, the glory of Christmas is that God sees the darkness of our world. Right? He sees the lifelessness of our experience. He sees the ache within our hearts of things that we long for but don't quite have. And, and as we sang earlier, he stepped down into that place, that place of trial, that place of brokenness, that place of longing and need, so that in Christmas, he might begin to create something new that we most long for. The incarnation brings new creation. And if you think about it, it is this kind of new creation that, that, that we long for in the very areas of our sort of mantra as a church. Right? We have an Emmanuel mantra that talks about that, that, that we desire to know and relate to all of God. Right? And that we long to know God's presence in all of life. And that we believe God is at work changing all of me. All of God, all of life, all of me is sort of the core of what binds us together as a church and says, this is what we're out, this is what we're after, a kind of spirituality that is whole, that is complete. And if you think about it, your, broke, your experience of brokenness causes you to doubt all of God, that perhaps part of God is not good, part of God is not light. Perhaps it tempts you to withhold and conceal parts of life, saying, I, I don't know if I want that piece of life to be offered to the Lord or if light to shine there. Perhaps it conceals part of you, an area of character, an area of self that's yours but doesn't belong to the Lord's. And what John is saying is that there is a kind of light in Jesus that shines into the darkness, the dark areas of yourself, the dark areas of your world, the dark areas um, that we might even think can be appropriate to God. And it shines in a way that constantly reveals its victory and its triumph. That's what light does. When we turn on the lights in this room, all of a sudden darkness is dispelled people can see. When Jesus shines, darkness is dispelled, and we can live, and we can have life. What you need to reckon with here is that 
John is bringing us back to creation where light first shone into the darkness. And then he's causing us to gaze ahead to new creation where Jesus is shining as our hope and guarantee that it will come. There's a huge arrow here pointing backward in John's gospel and pointing forward in John's gospel. It goes backward into creation, to the original scene where God hovers over the face of the waters and and makes light out of nothing in the darkness. And then it points forward to that great scene at, at, at Calvary where darkness covers the land. And yet even in darkness covering the land upon the cross, Jesus shines as a light And does so so powerfully that not even the brokenness of this world, not even the sin that hung him there could quench it. The light shines in the darkness, but it hasn't overcome it. Overcome is this mysterious word here in the Greek. It can mean, of course, victory, overcoming. It could also mean grasping or understanding. And what you see all throughout John's gospel is people are trying to grasp at Jesus to hold him, and they can't quite get him. They're trying to grab at him to understand him, but they don't quite yet see him. They need all of the work of Jesus, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to shine such that eyes can be opened and new life can be had. The light has come in Christ. And it's brought a kind of a new creation, a kind of new humanity, because humanity longs to be new. It's the only explanation for the ache in our hearts. And in Christmas, we have the hope that what we most long for has begun, and one day will come in full. So let's pray towards that end. God, would you come again? And while we wait in the in-between, would you give us comfort? Give us comfort in a world that can be dim. Give us comfort in a world that can be full of brokenness. Give us comfort in a world that can have suffering and pain. Give us comfort for the ache of our hearts that longs for something new, yet we live still in the reality of the old. And convince us of your gentleness towards us in the midst of that. That you're not asking us to to have greater hearts so that we might try harder. That you're not demanding us to just adopt a new mindset, but you've offered us a new mind. You've come not just to make things normal again, but to make them new. And we hope today, in the words of John, and the testimony of the scriptures that you will come again to make them new. So in the in-between, convince us that a bruised reed you will not break, that a wick that's just smoldering you won't snuff out, that no matter how alive or how lifeless we feel, no matter how hopeful or how hopeless we feel, that light can shine and the darkness will not overcome it. Thank you that you have come, the light has come, and we long for you to come again. Amen.